It, it sounds like it might be a tricky DevOps kind of problem. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> That's awesome. If if, if so only step, we had someone to advise us on how we could do that. Step step one: acquire a tricky DevOp. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> step two: stop using that word wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 113 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray morning, everyone. Josh Susser. Hi, I'm in solidarity with San Franciscans by working from home today. David Brady. I'm apparently in solidarity with San Franciscans today. I didn't know that. <laughs> Me too. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and I have a PhD in horribleness. And <laughs> yeah, but, get, but guess what have, I watched last night. But, but do you have the goggles and gauntlets? I, I need to order those off Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> get on it, man. <laughs> We also have a special guest, and that's uh, Nathan Harvey. Hey, how's everyone doing today? Terrific. So, How are you, Nathan? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm uh, calling in, also working from home today, so I'm one of those also sitting in solidarity with those folks in San Francisco, uh, although I'm doing it from Annapolis, Maryland. Oh. Wow. So can you introduce yourself for the folks that don't know who you are or don't listen to your podcast? Sure. So, uh, as Chuck mentioned, my name is Nathan Harvey, and I'm the co-host on a podcast called The Food Fight Show. The Food Fight Show is the podcast where DevOps chefs do battle. Frankly, we talk a lot about chef. We talk a lot about DevOps topics, but unfortunately, we don't actually have a lot of battling that happens on the shows. Uh, I'm also a community manager at OpsCode, which is the company behind the open source framework Chef which is not about cooking, although we speak in recipes and cookbooks all the time. Um, and then I'm also a co-organizer of a couple of meetup groups, including DevOps DC, which is in Washington, DC. Awesome. So Josh, now is the part where you ask for a definition. Oh, right. So what's a DevOps? Yeah, that's a great <laughs> question. <laughs> so, um, I recently gave a lightning talk at Ruby Nation and then followed that up with an Ignite talk at uh, DevOps Day's Silicon Valley. And my first slide, uh, I asked for some audience participation. I asked folks in the room to stand up if any of the statements I'm about to make rang true with them. So those statements were things like, I bleeping hate DevOps. Which DevOps tools should we use? If there's someone at your company who's a DevOps engineer or a DevOps lead, or if your company have a, has a DevOps team. So when I said that, you know, invariably a, a significant portion of the room stood up, at which point I had to inform them that they keep using that word, but I don't think it means what they think it means. Uh, so that is not what DevOps is. Uh, but I guess you want to know what DevOps actually is. Huh? Yeah. Yes, please. Yes. All right, so DevOps is a cultural and professional movement 
it's all about development and operations working together towards a common goal. And in fact, it goes beyond development and operations. It's really about the entire business working together to deliver value to your customers. Uh, and the DevOps movement is really looking at leveraging ideas and processes from other industries, things like lean manufacturing. Um, and you will use DevOps practices and policies and, you know, this idea of DevOps to enable things like continuous delivery, uh, to enable, you know, agile development across the board, not just within the development team, but also within your operations team and, and things like that. That sounds really interesting. I use the word DevOps and I'm being actually serious about, about this. This is not a joke. I use the word DevOps to say the things that I do when I'm typing in the terminal when I'm not writing application code. That's that's interesting because I use the word wrong as well, and it's any time a developer is doing IT work. The, yeah, and it, and it's it's the 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 key DevOps move is I can't write to the Apache directory. Uh, CD root ch mod minus r seven 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 enter, and you know just make the entire hard drive writable, and that's that's DevOps. Yeah, you know, the thing that the thing that really made me both cry and laugh and shake my head and put my palm to my face was I saw a tweet a while back about the Rails DevOps cheat sheet. And the Rails DevOps cheat sheet is, in fact, a bunch of Unix commands or Linux commands that do essentially that. They tell you how to do things like list all of the files in a directory, uh, how to kill a process. These things are important. They're, they're definitely things that we should all know how to do. They, you know, system administration or infrastructure engineering is not DevOps. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I worked as an operations analyst and then as a server administrator for, uh, between the two for like six years when I was in college, then moved into, uh, tech support and then programming. But, uh, you know, it, it was kind of an interesting thing for me to see come up because, a lot of the DevOps tools are really just, in some ways, a, a better or a different approach to the way that I did my job before the movement started, and so it, it's kind of it's kind of fun to see it uh, come come out that way. Um, I also want to comment briefly on Dave's uh, cheat sheet for uh, Rails developers uh, for DevOps because I've seen a few of those, and about half of them are here's how to circumvent the security that was set up around your app, <laughs> around your server. Yep. And then yep. that just makes me laugh my head off and, and then cry. But it's really interesting to find that uh, intersection between the two and to allow the two to collaborate. And I know that Dave in particular can uh, sympathize with developers that find themselves banging their heads against the IT wall trying to get stuff done on their servers <laughs> versus, um, you know, more of the... I, I've read a few books on, on XP and Agile where... Basically, you know, you have members on your team who are responsible for providing you with what it is you need, whether that's direction or resources. And to have an IT resource on your team, whether he's using kind of a, a DevOps approach or whether he's actually doing classical server administration for you, it, it, it just makes a huge difference to have that, that collaboration and somebody yeah. on board that's invested in your team because he's a part of it. Chuck has been on a team with me when the DevOps, as the proper definition of DevOps, uh, meaning the interaction between Dev and and the operations people, could best be described as a cold war. Oh yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, I think it, it definitely spawns from, you know, just having misaligned objectives, right? So yeah. operations, their objectives typically are to keep the site up and keep it running. Mm -hmm. Whereas development's objectives are to build new cool features that customers want. And the best mm -hmm. way for an operator to keep a site up and running is to make no changes to it. Yep. So Immutability. It's, it's, absolutely. It's within, within our, you know, uh, on the operation side, it's within, we're kind of incented to keep changes from happening. Right. So the, the whole yep. idea of just saying no to development, that's the right thing to do. And as, as on the development side, you know, you bring in things like agile practices and you start iterating much, much more quickly. That just means you're throwing more and more stuff over the wall that operations wants to put up blockers against and say, nope, we cannot, we just, we can't keep pace with, uh, the velocity that you guys on the development side are, are generating. It's impossible for us to keep up. When I, when I worked at a, at a big company, managing a team there, you know, we had a pretty fast turnaround time on development. And then there would be a three week deployment process that the, oh, the right. yeah, I mean, like, literally, you would you would, you know, push the button in the in the web console for, you know, deploying software, and that would file a ticket in somebody's queue. And three weeks later, your app would launch would get updated. And it's cool that when that happens, because three weeks later, when there's a bug in production, you know exactly what that bug is because you were yep. just in that code, right? Oh. Yeah, but then it takes three weeks to fix it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, three weeks to deploy the bug fix. I worked in another company that had a dedicated ops team. And in that company, the CEO was an engineer and he had he had started a previous uh, software startup. And so ops worked there a little bit differently. They weren't part of the development team, but at the same time, um, their job description was to keep the site secure and to keep, you know, all the data secure. And then, uh, their job was also to basically make things as seamless as possible for the engineers so that they could push the, the new code up. And so whenever anyone wanted to deploy, I mean, you kind of got it checked off by the lead developer and then it was good to go. You know, later we added QA practices and stuff on top of it, but even then it didn't take more than a week to get things out. Yeah. My impression is that ops people tend to look at developers uh, the way a proprietor of a china shop looks at a bull. <laughs> or a small child. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, is is that the case, Nathan? I mean, are, are, are developers just like, you know, the, the bane of the existence of, of a running deployment? <laughs> No, don't well, log in. Don't type anything, please. You'll break. Yeah, it. so I, th I, I think that like the the real change comes when you do start working together and and try to have some empathy for one another and uh, and understand what's going on. I think that uh, traditionally, yes, operations absolutely looks at development as the bull in that china shop. But I think that uh, really we start to see real change and real improvement when we start working together. You know, myself as an operations person. I spent most of my, uh, you know, my first job in operations was sitting in the same room with the development team, uh, building out the product with them over time. And that was, you know, that is the right way to do things. Um, and that definitely is the way to ensure that you can get to things like continuous delivery or something close to that and really understand the problems that each other uh, are facing. Most of the times when I've run into issues with the operations or IT staff, it's because they're not as involved. And so what happens is when I come to them and say, I need this library on the server, you know, it's a surprise to them. They don't even see it coming. And so 
again, you know, having somebody on the team that knows what's going on, knows that this dependency is coming up. I mean, by the time it has to be deployed, they should be on top of whether or not it's a good idea to put it on the machine. So I have a topic here, and that's system architecture versus application architecture. And and that that's the thing that that I think the interaction between the app development and and DevOps can be incredibly valuable. I've seen that be like really awesome on a project before. Nathan, is is that something like is that the bread and butter of DevOps, or is that you know something special that happens? Um, well, maybe I'll ask another question yeah. um, in response. So I think that uh, I think there's oftentimes a a desire for on the development side not to care about what the system architecture actually looks like. I don't care what my de- deployment environment looks like, and I think that that definitely is the path towards destruction. Right. So. When you're developing an application, if you're building it to run on something like Heroku, you're going to build it slightly differently than you would, say, if it's running on Amazon's EC2 or if it's running within your own data center. And understanding some of the trade-offs between those various architecture points is definitely an important thing that you have to, I think, bring into your application design uh, and into your application architecture. I, I listened uh, to a few of the Food Fight episodes uh, in preparation for this episode and my favorite was I listened to the one where you guys interviewed the Netflix team over their open source stuff. It was a really great episode at Netflix. I didn't realize like I, I think I remember when they put their open source stuff up there and I looked and there was like one or two things. And now if you go look, it's like a billion things. <laughs> They've released like, you know, all of their different infrastructure. And, and uh, it was really interesting to see all the different pieces and hear you guys talk about them, about how they're used. But uh, there were some great examples of what you were just talking about in there of like how one team makes these, uh, the monkeys, right? The chaos monkey being the most famous one that yep. runs around killing things. But they actually said the one that's more helpful is the latency monkey that goes around and just inserts random latency between the systems. And they said, you wouldn't believe how many problems that flushes when they insert latency, because what they find is that the developers have the timeout set way too high. They have a timeout of something like three seconds when it ought to be like a hundred milliseconds or something. And so once the latency monkey, you know, throws some random latency between these two systems, everything falls apart because that one system with the high timeout is still waiting. And I just thought it was a, an awesome example of ops guys helping developers, you know, of, of we built this tool that will show you when you're making mistakes that could really hurt us. Yeah, and that was certainly a, a really fun episode. The stuff that Netflix does is pretty, uh, pretty incredible. They also probably have the prettiest open source center homepage on GitHub. Yeah, it's uh, awesome. You should go look at it if you haven't. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, the, fir- the first time I looked at that, I wondered if there was some weird browser redirect that happened that I didn't know. Right, right. You think, <laughs> wait, what? Did I land on the wrong site? <laughs> yeah. It's like, this isn't GitHub. What's going on? I want to talk a little bit about Ruby and DevOps. And first, I think I really want to talk about some of the tools that are out there. Um, so there's Chef and Puppet, both of which are written in Ruby. There's a whole host of different deployment gems you can pick up to deploy your application. 
why is it that these things tend to proliferate in Ruby as opposed to some of the other languages out there? Is there something about the language, the Ruby language, that, that makes it easy to build these, or was it just because people liked them? I think what you'll find, uh, and certainly, you know, coming from a chef background, I've used both Puppet and Chef professionally, and obviously I now work for Opscode, the company behind Chef. But I think that the real thing about Ruby and DevOps tools, it's it's really no different than what the, some of the reasons that you came to Ruby, right? As a system administrator, being able to automate things, number one, just makes me really happy. But being able to automate those things and use uh, Ruby in order to do so, uh, you know, Ruby's all about developer happiness. And I think that getting into Ruby in these automation tools like Chef, I just feel really, really comfortable in that space. I feel really happy. I can be very productive using Ruby. And I think that that's really a big draw for Ruby and why Ruby is used so often uh, when it comes to automating your infrastructure. So I, I think one of the challenges, I mean, I mean, from my experience, one of the challenges of doing that kind of work is having to work at a lot of different levels at the same time. That you know, there's an incredibly low-level uh, bit twiddling kind of things that you have to do uh, with, you know, directory permissions or, you know, th things like that. And th but then there's also very high-level things that you have to do that are like, oh, I have to keep track of you know a thousand servers and make sure that they're all organized in the right way and you know monitored the right way. And so there's like very low-level and very high-level things, and I guess Ruby is pretty good at spanning those levels of abstraction pretty seamlessly. So that's my my take on why Ruby gets used like that a lot. Yeah, that's definitely the case that, that number one, you do have to think about things at so many different levels. Um, and Ruby absolutely is a great way to abstract a lot of that away, especially, you know, with metaprogramming and, and things like DSLs, you know, domain-specific languages. I can make a system administrator very comfortable managing not only a single server environment, but again, like managing that entire infrastructure and managing that infrastructure as a cohesive unit, not as, you know, a collection of a thousand different things. I'm going to be slightly pessimistic here and say that perhaps these tools rose out of Ruby because in the beginning, deploying Rails was really complicated, right? And kind of a pain in the butt. And uh, we threw a lot of energy at that, right? To try to make it better. Um, you know, things like Capistrano and stuff like that. And maybe that's what got this ball rolling and, and you know, pushed us to build these better and better tools. I'm totally guessing there, but it's one possible. I would follow that by saying uh, Chef and Puppet, Puppet came into existence because Jameis stopped maintaining Capistrano. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, I could totally argue the history there. Sure. Because I, I don't think that, you know, I think that that's an interesting take on it. I think that certainly tools like Chef and Puppet came into the fore in Ruby and Rails and in that community due to things like Capistrano and whether or not they were still maintained. But in any case, I think that, you know, it's very comfortable for a Ruby developer to switch or to start implementing something like Chef or Puppet, specifically Chef, because, you know, the DSL is so comfortable there. I think that, you know, there were things like CF Engine, which came before Puppet and Chef and really kind of started the whole, like, current wave of infrastructure automation. But I think that the big things that have really driven sort of the, the tool set or, or the tooling around DevOps really are things like the cloud, right? The ability for 
anyone to easily spin up infrastructure. I think, frankly, that a lot of what happens is developers will work around the IT department because the IT department is simply saying no all the time. But I have functionality that I need to deploy and I need to manage those systems. And I can easily work around you with a credit card and leverage something like Chef. And and now my application is live and you don't even know about it. Do you think um, the recent interest in things like SOA architectures to scale applications, it seems like maybe that's another sweet spot why DevOps is becoming really important because it does require attention at both levels, right? The SOA requires some pretty, you know, uh, savvy on the ops side to, to build out the structure, right? And then in your programs, you're going to have to be aware of that because, you know, as the Netflix guys like to say, you know, something's going to go away eventually, you know, that service is going to go away and you got to handle it. You know? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. I think that also, obviously, with SOA, you move away from uh, or you start to see this quick proliferation of services and therefore servers that you need to run those services on. And so that the problem just gets bigger and bigger very quickly. Uh, and and you you quickly understand that managing things by hand is certainly not not going to work ever. So one one other question I have for you regarding DevOps is that it seems like a lot of people get into it by using some of these other tools, not not Chef or Puppet, but something like Capistrano or Mina or or Moonshine even, which is sort of a dumbed down version of of a DevOps tool that uses Puppet. You know, so you can do simple deployment provisioning, do you think that people eventually move up to Chef from those? Or are there trade-offs to using tools like Moonshine that kind of do both things? So I would say that I, uh, when I first came to operations and was managing uh, my first sort of Ruby or Rails application of scale, I definitely started with Capistrano and was using Capistrano almost exclusively to manage that application. The downside of tools like Capistrano is that in order to build in item potence, uh, you have to do a lot of stuff. And you, you basically get that for free with Chef. And by item potence, I mean things like if I want to say install Nginx, Nginx, uh, if it's, if I write it, I can easily write a script in Capistrano to build Nginx from source and install it on a server. The thing that I would then need to add in to say my Capistrano recipes is to check first to make sure that Nginx isn't there uh, so that I don't install Nginx every time I run that particular script. Whereas things like Chef, you get that built in for free, right? It knows and it's smart enough to know, uh, is Nginx here? If so, I don't need to take any action. Otherwise, I do need to take action to make something happen. And what we really get into then is we're modeling sort of the desired state of our infrastructure, which is, it's a slightly different way of approaching the problem. Uh, it definitely requires a mindset shift than, you know, something like Capistrano where I'm just going to script. These are the, these are the steps that I take to build this infrastructure. That kind of leads me into an interesting uh, side question. I don't know if you saw uh, recently, Nathan, this blog post by Chad Fowler uh, on immutable deployments. Uh, but this isn't the, the first time I've heard of this. Lots of people going to uh, structures where uh, when you build and deploy a server, then that's it. And that server should never, ever be changed again. So in other words, you would never, you know, re-chef the server where it would need that item potence uh, feature. 
and then the idea is there that if you need to deploy something else, then you, you know, bring up a new server, load your, you know, uh, image on that or whatever, uh, you know, with the changes and you put that in and then, you know, swap them out at the HA proxy level or whatever, your load balancer. Anyways, I, I was just wondering if you've, you've heard of this kind of trend that seems to be, I've seen multiple people doing it now where, where a server is a one-time build thing. And then if that needs to be redone for any reason at all, then it's totally replaced. And I was wondering what you think about that. Yeah, sure. So it's, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Chad's article. We're actually working to get him scheduled to come on the food fight show so that perhaps we can have an episode where we actually do some battle. So I think that, uh, <laughs> I think you see, actually, you know, James, you said you listened to the Netflix episode. That's a lot of the way Netflix manages their infrastructure, right? In fact, the application developers, each application is itself its own AMI or Amazon machine image uh, that gets launched. And when you need to change the application, you're actually building a new AMI and launching that. And that's the way that Netflix manages much of their infrastructure. I think that what we've learned in terms of system administration over the years is that golden images, and essentially that's what we're talking about here, are golden images, aren't necessarily a great way to manage your infrastructure. I think that you end up doing something like Netflix where you have to build a lot of overhead around how do I manage those golden images or how do I manage those AMIs and make sure that I can, in fact, get to a point where I have immutable servers. But even in the example that you just gave, that HA proxy server is going to have to change, right? So the configuration of which application servers sit behind the load balancer, that's going to change over time. And so I think that, uh, you know, it becomes challenging to sort out what are some small changes that potentially need to be made and what is their impact on having things like golden images. So in the case where I have an HA proxy server, if I need to change the configuration of which backend services is it proxying loads to? Do I want to rebuild the golden image or the rebuild the machine every time a change like that needs to happen? And I would argue that you certainly don't want to. You need to have something that's a little bit more flexible. Uh, and that's where something like Chef or Puppet comes in. So I, I think I hear what you're saying there. I will give another interesting example, though, that I heard recently. I believe it was at Ruby Midwest, and I'll try to find the link to the video, but... One of the talks there, uh, the developer works for a, a, basically a shopping application company and they have very strict compliance, uh, that they have to keep, uh, due to the financial aspects of their business. So one of that is that basically they can't deploy a line of code that hasn't been inspected by them. Um, so literally every time they update a gem, they have to go back through all those commits uh, that led up to that gem and go through them and approve all those changes and verify that they're safe. And so by using an architecture like this, and they, they too build these kind of, you know, uh, ready to go images, they knew that whatever was on that image, they had been through that code. Whereas if, you know, they just allowed, you know, willy-nilly updates or whatever, it's possible code can sneak in there that would break their uh, compliance that they have to meet. And so it was an interesting, I think it was an interesting use case. I think there might be some value to the approach, though. I think I understand what you're saying about, you know, some things are going to have to change. Yeah, no, and I, I definitely agree that there's value to the approach. And I, I think that it comes down to how do you build those images 
And something like Chef, where you're modeling your infrastructure, of course, you're modeling it as code, and that's all in your GitHub repository or Git repository or whatever source code control you use. So that also helps with sort of auditability of what has changed on these servers over time. How have we been building out these AMIs? You can potentially give your chef recipes with an explanation to your auditor and say, look, this is how how bits get installed and configured on this server. Uh, and this is the only way that those bits get installed and configured on this server. So uh, I have another question. So chef server, I believe, started out written in I don't remember if it was Rails or Sinatra, but I'm aware that recently they've uh, moved over to writing it in Erlang. Yeah, that's right. So the Chef server definitely, um, so so Chef basically utilizes a client server model, right, where you have on each one of the servers that you're managing or that are managed by Chef, they're running the Chef client, which will just connect to an API server. So the Chef server itself basically has a couple of roles. It is an API server that your chef clients will connect to. It also includes a searchable index of data about your infrastructure. So when we talk about things like the load balancer, it can uh, you can query the chef server and ask it, what application servers should I configure to be behind this load balancer? Or in a Rails application, you could use a query against the chef server to determine how do I write out my database.yaml. Uh, and then the other thing that the Chef server does is it provides, uh, it's essentially a publishing platform. So locally on my workstation, I'll write my cookbooks and recipes, which are essentially the, the policy of the desired state of my infrastructure. And I will publish those up to the Chef server, and it will take care to distribute those recipes and cookbooks out to the nodes or the servers that are being managed that actually need to apply those policies. And you're absolutely right. That was originally, the Chef server itself was originally written in Ruby. And what Opscode has done over the, the past couple of years is we've launched a, a hosted chef service uh, where essentially we're running the server side of that architecture as software as a service. And what we saw in building that out in Ruby was that the API server really wasn't scaling in a way that we wanted it to. Uh, and so not only for our own needs in terms of hosted chef, but also some of our larger client needs. So we went about rewriting that entire API server or the entire chef server in Erlang. Um, and what we found with that was that we got incredible increases in performance and speed, much more consistent uh, memory and, and CPU utilization, um, and just saw some huge rapid gains there. Awesome. Therefore, Ruby doesn't scale. <laughs> So I would say that, um, you know, one of the challenges that we do run into with folks is we are essentially asking system administrators to start modeling their infrastructure as code. And for a lot of system administrators, they feel like that is a huge step, right? They're, they're not programmers, or at least they don't view themselves as programmers. They're used to writing bash scripts and things along those lines. Um, so coming to something like Chef, can become a little bit scary for them. We tried to do our best and reassure them that they are, in fact, programmers. They just have really shitty tools. And so we give them Chef and Ruby, and that's much, much better for them, and they can be much more happy there. The the team that I worked on that was where we I characterized it as a Cold War was like that, and the the VP of, of IT was a Bash scripting master. I mean, he, he taught me some amazing things in Bash, and every time I kept suggesting that 
you know, he go to something like Puppet or Chef, he's like, well, what does that give us? And I would describe, you know, another feature of Puppet or another feature of Chef. And he was like, well, I can do that. And he would go off for a week and he would come back with a collection of Bash scripts that did that for him. And, you know, he just he just kept splacking on another layer of bash to this mud ball that they, they used for their deployment. And about a year after uh, I got laid off and the, the assistant and that particular guy quit the, the other guy at it who was also wicked sharp. I met up with him at a conference and uh, I'm like, so how's, you know, how's deployment going? And he says, Oh, it's fantastic. Since so-and-so left, <laughs> I moved everything over to puppet. And it's easy now, so yeah, that's uh, that's not uncommon, right? So oftentimes when we when we go and teach system administrators, one of the things that Chef provides is a resource, and a, a resource is kind of the primitive in Chef that you will use to define your policy. Uh, so a resource might be a package or a user or a directory or something like that. But uh, one of the resources that we have is an execute resource, which is basically the the punt resource, right? So we have you know, we don't really have a great way for you to model what you want to model. You can just throw in some shell out into this execute resource. So oftentimes when you get someone like that with, you know, hundreds and or thousands of lines of bash code, the first thing they do is they move all that bash code into an execute resource in their recipe mm-hmm. and then they're done. They're using chef now. So <laughs> what's, what's the thing? <laughs> whoops. It's, yeah. it's kind of like taking your entire, I, I gave a talk about this on refactoring horrible Ruby scripts. And I said, yeah, the, the first thing you do is you open up that entire script and you type class application def self dot run and then your whole application. Then you say end to end and then you do, you know, if file equals dollar zero application dot run and you're done. You've, you've, you've converted now it. My program is object oriented. Object oriented. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. And be sure you check it into version control. And, and I, uh, you know, often remind folks that version control does not end in dot back or dot timestamp. That is not version control. <laughs> no. I had a, had a coworker who would rename things to dot org, O-R-G. And that's a that's an org uh, an organ organizer mode in Emacs, and uh, all all my Ruby files started turning into planner sheets. <laughs> I'm like, Chris, stop this! <laughs> yeah, so awesome. So I have another question with Chef. You have your Chef client, and I'm assuming that that you know can send shell commands because Ruby can. Um, sure. So what what power tools do you find yourself using on the server to get the work done? you know, from the shell uh, in particular? I'm not sure I fully understand the question. So, grep, awk, said? Oh, sure, sure, sure. So, <clears throat> I think that uh, for the most part, Chef enables you to to not have to worry too much about some of those underlying shell commands like grep, awk, and said. Uh, and we provide resources, you know, like, for example, you might want to use awk or said to manipulate a configuration file. So with Chef, you get uh, essentially templates. So you have ERB templates that you can uh, write out onto the file system. So instead of managing uh, a particular bit within a file, say a configuration parameter within your, maybe an Apache directive or something, instead of managing just that directive, you will manage the entire file. uh, And you'll manage that with Chef through a template. 
I think that, you know, as a system administrator, you certainly are always using, you know, command line tools. But with Chef, the idea is really to get away from ever having to SSH into a server. And that any configuration change that you want to make really starts with a commit into your source code repository. That's an awesome idea, actually. Like, it's, it, developers have similar practices, right? Like, uh, you know, you shouldn't really uh, go into the server and edit the Rails file there and restart the thing so you can see what happens, <laughs> right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that the really exciting thing in the Chef community over the last 18 months or so, 18 to 24 months, is this lot of tools are being built up around Chef, uh, basically an ecosystem of tools around testing Chef. And this gives us things like uh, unit testing through ChefSpec, BDD through Cucumber Chef, uh, basically, and everything in between. And the beauty of this, of course, is that we can start to build deployment pipelines just like you would build an applications deployment pipeline, wherein I check in some code to my Git repository for that's an infrastructure code change. Something like Jenkins or Travis CI can pick that up, execute my tests to make sure that my build is green, and then can push out those changes out to production. Uh, and you can actually start to manage your infrastructure in the same way that you manage your applications. Okay, so I have a, I have a, a question that's always, um, that's always nagged me about this, about, uh, managing servers. And perhaps you can, you can be the voice of reason at, uh, at, uh, bridging the divide. And that's installing stuff. Um, the Ruby way versus installing it through package management systems. So you should just package everything. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've been read. <laughs> so, so are you talking about like there's on certain systems like a Ruby dash MySQL versus installing the MySQL gem? Yes, yeah, that kind of thing. The, and, and in fact, I I, I was like trying to deploy to some into somebody's data center and the ops guys there would not let me install any Ruby gems. They, they like had their own packaged up gems that went in through their, the, I don't know if it was Ubuntu or what, but they had their own, their own, uh, like repackaging of all of the Ruby gems as native packages. And that sounds really familiar, doesn't it, Dave? Yeah, the Cold War IT department was the same way. <laughs> they, every single gem that we wanted to install, we had to give it to them and they would vet it and they would build an RPM out of it and use RPM or yeah, they would build an RPM package out of it and use that to deploy it. Obviously they have something that they care about there that doing that extra work is supposed yes. to make yeah. happen. Yeah. We had, we had uh, classified data on those ser servers. And so if the cows got out of the barn, the whole farm would be raised to the ground by the government. And mm -hmm. so they, I kind of tortured that metaphor a little bit, but anyway, they, they were really, I mean, they took a really dim view of, of security, uh, breaches. And so for them, um, they weren't just being anal, they were doing their jobs. Well, and I think it really comes down to, down to that communication, right? So in some cases, uh, and in some environments, you simply can't get out to the internet, right? Yeah. So in that case, I need to either run my own gem server, in which case I want to make sure I know what gems are on that server. But likely that means I'm also running my own package repository because there are, you know, system level packages that I can get from vendors or that I can create on my own. 
And so going to this idea of, you know, now we're complicated because we have some things that are gems that get installed and some things that are packages that get installed. Um, and they, they don't exactly work the same way. Uh, and so how do we streamline that process? And maybe packages is the right answer there. But really what it comes down to, I think, is, you know, having that communication between the operations team and really talking about, all right, well, here's how, here's how our system architecture works. And let's work with the development team to make sure that, uh, we're deploying their applications in a way that's going to work for them. Uh, should I bundle, should I bundle with a Rails application? Should I bundle install all of the gems or should they be there already as part of the system? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The the hilarious thing about that was this was long enough ago that it was pre bundler, and it was like, oh, just give us a list of all of the gems that you that you need installed, and we'll you know install packages for them. And it's like sure that was easy. <laughs> it's like, well, how do we find that out? <laughs> so yeah, there there was no obvious way to do that uh, back then. It, you know, it wasn't too hard to figure it out, but um, sure. yeah, it's it's certainly easier now. But, but man, yeah. 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 But you also have tools like FPM. I don't know if you guys are familiar with FPM. Uh, that's a really interesting tool that uh, I'll give you a link for in the show notes. But it stands for FN Package Managers. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a nice little Ruby script that you can use to build a package for basically anything that you want. And it, it will output RPMs or DEBs uh, based on what you want. And so nice. typically you'll find folks are using that to build Ruby itself, right? So... I would never use something like RVM or RBN in a production environment. I would have a package that is Ruby, and that's how Ruby gets installed on this machine. So hmm. why not why not use something like RVM or RBM in a production environment? So the 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 reason that I would uh, shy away from that is because I think that the real the real benefit you get from RVM is being able to or, or RBN is being able to switch out which Ruby I'm using and test out various versions of Ruby. Uh, and in a production system, I'm only ever going to need one version of Ruby. Ruby, And if I need to change the version of Ruby, I should just reinstall the package or, or probably even more so, I should blow away that server and provision a new one with the proper Ruby version installed on it. So, so you've never run a deployment that had MRI and JRuby on the same server? I have not. <laughs> Just saying, <laughs> it I, happens. As, as as a hacker, uh, I have a system that that belongs to me that comes off my personal credit card, and it's got uh, Ruby one eight and Ruby one nine and a Ruby two point and JRuby, and Lord help me, they're all running on that same box under the same nginx instance, uh, just depending on which virtual host it hits. Yeah, I've got the same kind of thing going on with Apache and uh, Passenger. I think it's the pre-release version of Passenger lets you specify yeah. which Ruby per app. But yeah, same thing here. And it's just because I don't want to buy 10 servers for 10 apps that are under right. different versions of Ruby. There's also much lighter tools uh, than RVM and, and RBM, uh, like uh, Cheruby, which seems to be gaining a lot of grounds, like that. 100 line bash script that just changes environment variables basically right sure and i think that uh you know the the big argument against those is that like you said you know you're running many applications on the same server that's totally acceptable and a great use case for something like rbn or cheruby uh but as as you get into scaling out those applications yeah uh, and and granted in your case right 
these are your own personal applications. They aren't. Yeah, I mean those, the scale. I mean some of the page, some of those servers get dozens of page views per day. Holy so, cow! Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> and and you have time to spend on a podcast? Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I don't. In fact, one of those requests is coming in right now. Hang on, I've got to tell oh, that something back. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Manually respond. Yeah, I did have an application that needed JRuby for some uh, Java interoperability, um, but the way we did handle that in our production environment is we did put that on a separate machine so that we only had to worry about java and those dependencies on that particular machine and then we communicated it uh, with it when we needed those kinds of things uh, and that worked out pretty well i think so i so, will say that uh, another uh, another bit of devops if you will is really all about sharing information and we've talked a lot about um how development operations really need to understand some of the constraints and and as they're developing applications what what does the system architecture look like i think the other big place where that communication really comes into play is when things go wrong. And it, that really comes down to things like postmortems and the way that you run postmortems and including both development and operations in a postmortem, I think, can serve both sides tremendously. I actually worked at a company where we had a postmortem and the boss came in and very literally started the meeting with somebody is getting fired today. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's, that's not always- helpful. That's always step zero, right? Assess blame. <laughs> once that's done, we can, once we've done that, we can move on and actually figure out what went wrong. Yeah, the first step is admitting somebody else has a problem. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a really good point. I mean, you talked about uh, you know the having both teams in there and, and stuff. You know, it's like if you had a DBA and it was a database problem that happened, you'd want them there. Right. But and if the developers, you know, if it was how the application was using the database, you'd want the developers there. Right. So, yeah, that's that's absolutely the case. And I've been in postmortems, you know, back when I used to run production systems, not when I was community manager, but I've been in uh, postmortems where on the operations side, we could absolutely come up with a way to prevent that thing from happening again. And it was super complex and would require a lot of work from us. whereas having a developer in the room meant that a small change to the way the application worked could solve that problem um, and would take, you know, a tenth of the time and resources and was actually the right solution anyhow. Let's- I think you actually hit on something really key right there. I was uh, involved in an application at one point where the client was asking for a very unusual feature uh, and it, they were asking us, the developers, and it was going to be really complicated to implement. And we, you know, we were pushing back pretty hard because we didn't think there was a big gain for the development required. But it turned out the ops guy, he basically did it with, uh, loading and changing the web server config a little bit. <laughs> it was able to get them basically what they wanted, you know, and it was a very simple thing to do. And I think that's what you're hitting on right there is that, you know, Sometimes things are very hard from one layer, but not hard at all from the other layer. You know, like if you have all these different services in a service-oriented architecture and you need to handle some auth, you know, globally across them, maybe for third parties, you know, one way is to invent a complicated system that all of those services use programmatically that manages the auth. 
another might be to put a proxy in there with some auth settings on it, <laughs> right? Or something like that. There's there's sometimes an easier way to skin the cat from the other side. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that that's, you know, kind of the other the other side of that is that DevOps doesn't mean developers do all of operations. It doesn't mean that we all need to start specializing in the other's field. It It's simply that we work together and really understand, you know, how do we work together as a team uh, and come up with the solutions that are most appropriate for the challenges that we face. Yeah, it, it's the impedance mismatch problem all over again, right? I mean, solve the problem at the level the problem is occurring. And that's the easiest way to do it. Yeah. One other thing I want to just toss in with the um, postmortems is that in a lot of cases, in fact, um, I've only seen one or two cases where it was clearly like a misconfiguration of the database or clearly something that was going wrong in the application. Um, if it's a major outage, it's usually uh, a conglomeration of, of things that come together that cause the problem. And so you can reconfigure the database, but you can also rewrite some of the application code, and both help to alleviate the problem. And so um, I, I really like the idea of pulling everybody together and saying, okay, here's the problem. How do we solve it? Yeah, and that, I think you hit on another great point there, and that is that there, there rarely is a single root cause, right? It's always a bunch of highly unprobable things that will never happen together all happening at the same time. Yep. Yeah. You get that wacky convergence of circumstances that's traffic and whatever and whatever else. And That's uh, that you can read good books about how airplanes don't crash because one thing goes wrong, right? We've, we've, yep. we've made them so, you know, redundant and, and carefully balanced and monitored and everything. And we have practices in place. Airplanes crash because 10 things go wrong, right? Yep. At the same time, yep. Right. Yep. And that's the, that's the other part of DevOps, right, is taking learnings from other industries, like the airline industry, like manufacturing, um, and also just taking things like our postmortems and sharing them with the world, right? GitHub does a great job with this. Uh, postmortem happens, it happens in the public. It happens where people can see and read about everything that happened. And as, as a profession, we can all learn from each other and make, make our own infrastructures even better. Hey, so so I have a question about um, uh, like process and and uh, team composition. When 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 Elizabeth Hendrickson was on a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about uh, the role of of testing and exploratory testing in the application development process, she was big on oh, you want to be uh, you want to have people who are doing your testing involved very early in the process. So that they can have uh, some input into the requirements, or to or to or to look at the requirements and say sure. you know whether they're going to work or not. It how early does it make sense to get uh, ops people or and DevOps type stuff going in the app development process? Do you want people there from the very beginning, or? I really think you do. I think that uh, in if one of your goals is to get to something like continuous delivery then you really do need operations involved at the beginning. And there are tools out there, things like Vagrant, that allow you to very easily spin up a development environment that's going to look just like your production environment. So you stop, let's say you're deploying to something like Ubuntu. Instead of developing on your Mac locally, uh, develop in a Vagrant VM that's running Ubuntu that's configured with something like Chef 
and we're going to use the same recipes to configure your production environment. Build out that de delivery pipeline, right? So start with your Capistrano scripts. Can I, on day two, can I deploy to a staging environment? Uh, deploying code should not be an exciting thing that happens only once every two weeks or once every six months or, you know, what have you. It should happen all the time. Yeah, that was something that was brought up in the, oh, which book was it? The, one of our book club books. Like the, the first step is testing your deployment. It's the object-oriented. Goose? Yeah, Goose. Growing object-oriented software, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that one. I'll put a link with, to that in the show with notes. With tests. <laughs> <laughs> I want to follow up on that last question. So uh, Elizabeth talked about um, a couple finesse moves that she had figured out to get the project owners to pay attention to the input from testing. Do you have similar or, or other kinds of uh, moves that you do to get people to pay attention to your input early enough in the process to have it be useful or at all, I guess? <laughs> right. I think that that in part comes down to where you are in the life cycle of an application. So if we're talking about building a new application from the ground up, I think that it it makes sense to immediately put an operations person in the same room and, you know, working together with that development team, helping to build out that infrastructure from the onset. If that's not the case, if you're, if you're looking at an application or a team that's already together, I think that it makes sense to sort of in either case, put operations in the same room with development, uh, have them working together from the beginning and really looking at I think the other kind of big thing is looking at the definition of done for a developer. I found that, you know, in a previous life, done meant I did, um, I did a git push. That's it. My code is in the repository that everyone can see. Therefore, I'm done. And what you really need to do is redefine done for developers to mean that your code is in production. And I think that, uh, the operations team, our goal and our sort of our, our idea is to build the tools that are required to allow the developer to get his or her code all the way through to production without needing to have uh, an operations person there. You know, I shouldn't be a, a, a merge monkey. I shouldn't be the only person who knows how to press the deploy button. Everyone should be enabled to do that. So let me get this straight. You actually want us to talk to each other? I know, I know, it's crazy. It's uh, it's like a ludicrous idea, but uh, occasionally I think it is required. I want to ask you a, a question. Do you think uh, this is getting better over time? I mean, my impression is that it probably is. Like, I do have my horror story of the separate IT department for me and the horrible things I had to do because of them. But that was a long time ago, and a lot of the clients I've worked with in recent years seem to get it much more. I mean, in my current project, uh, the uh, ops guy definitely works day-to-day -day in the same room with us programmers, and we solve each other's problems, and, and it's great. And then, you know, we have things like the DevOps movement and stuff. It seems like this is going in the right direction, do you think? I think this is definitely going in the right direction. I think that we're seeing... Not only are we seeing a, a prevalence of operations and dev working together a lot more, but I think that we're also starting to see it in much larger companies. Uh, I think that, you know, you can now start to look at enter uh, enterprises that are 
starting to embrace the idea of DevOps. And I do think that uh, the way that they're embracing the idea of DevOps is rather similar to the way that they embraced Agile when it first came out, right? So there's an edict from on high that now we're doing DevOps, just like there was at one point from now we're doing Agile. And so you see some teams that have a stand-up every day or that start, you know, put an operations person in the room with the developers. That in and of itself doesn't get you to DevOps or doesn't get you to Agile just standing up every day, right? But there are, there are pockets within the enterprise or pockets within companies that are well established that are starting to actually, you know, understand the ideas and adopt them properly. I think that we have a, we have a long way to go to, to really help people make the transition, help people start talking to one another, help people start, you know, looking at things across the value chain. But I definitely agree with you that we are getting better. Uh, the future is quite bright and we're moving in the right directions. Awesome. Is there something equivalent to like the Agile Manifesto that talks about like the, the fundamental principles of DevOps? That's a great for question. Me, yeah, for me, the, the thing that comes closest is a blog post that John Willis wrote on, it was actually on the Ops blog, um, that defined DevOps as being about CAMs, culture, automation, measurement, and sharing. Uh, and it talks about things like people in process first and how do you automate things and, and so forth. I'll, I'll put a link for that in show notes as well. But I think that that, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely, I think, so I think that, um, DevOps itself, you will find many, many definitions for online and in books and so forth. But I think for me, this is a really good summation of what the DevOps movement is all about. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Nifty. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into the picks. James, do you want to start us off? Sure. I've been picking Jesse Stormer stuff lately because Jesse Stormer is kicking ass. But uh, I picked his uh, Unix class. Maybe that was last week. Uh, and if you went and checked that out, then you probably found this video. Uh, but I'm worried that some of you didn't go check that out and didn't find this video. So I'm going to link to it in a different way. He has a, uh, a little screencast here where he basically walks you through showing how tools like Spork, uh, Spin, Zeus to a lesser extent, uh, work. And he does that by um, taking the Ruby Gems repository that we've talked about on the show before and uh, going in and just taking a test that takes about five seconds to run and just building enough infrastructure that uh, he cuts it down to, uh, you know, he shaves like two seconds off, I think. And it's really interesting how he does that. So, and it shows you some cool uh, Unixisms and stuff like that and why learning this kind of stuff is valuable. So it seemed kind of DevOpsy themed and I, I liked that. So uh, check that out. And then for totally fun, a board game that my group of friends has been playing recently is called Flashpoint. Uh, and it's a pretty cool game where um, you basically show up as a team of firefighters at a building that's burning down. Uh, and you have to save uh, seven of ten victims that are trapped inside. And each person plays a 
different firefighter that has different abilities. So some are better at getting people out and others are better at, at uh, containing the fire and stuff. And uh, it's a cooperative game where you all work together and the board's working against you trying to blow the place up before you can get everybody out. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's been really enjoyable. So check that out. Awesome. Dave, what are your picks? Um, I got four, but uh, three of them are just links. So just real quickly... Uh, the first one is um, from Mountain West this year. It's related to the podcast today. Uh, Mountain West Ruby Conference, Escalating Complexity, DevOps Learnings from Air France 447. Um, it was a, a just a really compelling talk about uh, what happens when human beings are surrounded by tons and tons and tons of complexity. You know, how to assign blame when uh, very competent and well-meaning humans are actors in a highly complicated system. The second link I have um, is a little bit of fun. Uh, it's it's from my old live journal that I don't update anymore, but uh, I was updating it infrequently when I was working at that place where we had the IT Cold War. And it's a little post called, What I Do at My Job. And it includes the sentence, I write programs. Making servers go is not my problem. But that doesn't mean I can't write programs to watch servers and let me know when they stop going. And it's just a fun little uh, true true tales of DevOps kind of thing that happened to me a couple years ago. Um, the third one, even faster, is from BuzzFeed. Uh, it's 21 jokes only nerds will understand. Uh, Roman walks into a bar and orders a, Marti a Martinez. The bartender says, don't you mean a martini? And he says, if I had wanted a double, I would have asked for one. There's 20 more on that page. They're fantastic. Um, <laughs> And then the last one is an iPad game, uh, Ridiculous Fishing, A Tale of Redemption. Uh, this is a $2.99 game. There are, I, I bought it for two reasons. One, it won a design award, um, for 2013 from Apple. And the second one is that there are no in-app purchases at all. For $3.99, you get the whole freaking game. Um, you'll get tired of it in less than five or six hours. I mean, there's only about seven or eight dollars worth of entertainment there but what a fantastic eight dollars uh, worth of entertainment um you uh drop a fish hook down into a trench and you have to avoid the fish all the way down uh until you hit a fish at which point the, the fish hook starts coming up and now you try and hit as many fish as you can and of course because this is how fishing works in real life when they get to the surface you fling all the fish in the air and you have to shoot them with a shotgun um <laughs> it is or, or a bazooka or a bazooka, or a, you, you, you can upgrade to dual machine guns. It's it, it, ridiculous fishing. The title says it all. It's it's. Uh, I highly recommend it. It is well worth the three dollars that you shell out for it. I, I'm pretty sure I need a faster iPad to really do the game. <laughs> <laughs> You're catching too many fish. Yeah, exactly. So. Remind me not to go fishing with that guy. Oh, dude! If if we find this guy in real life, I want to be on that boat. I want to be hunkered I, I, down on that boat, I, but I want to be on that boat. David, I think James was referring to you. Oh, I, I am that guy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I had a friend from Georgia who who referred to hunting as uh, being drunk with a gun in a tree, and fishing was being drunk with a gun in a boat. So there you well, go. Well, at least at least nice. he knows the difference. Yes. And them's my picks. All right, Josh, what are your picks? <laughs> okay. Let's see. My first pick is Ryan Bates. And, you know, we, we, we've had him on the show. We love him. He's a little burned out right now. He put up an announcement on Railscast saying he was taking the summer off. So good for you, guy. Um, uh, I 
you know, Ryan has been a mainstay of the Ruby community for years. He's, you know, given a lot to the community. And, you know, I, I think uh, now's a great time to just give him some unconditional love and support because he deserves it. Yay. So, Absolutely. So, yeah. And then I have a, a slightly more practical pick. And, and that's, I, I had to level up my YAML recently. I, I did some crazy stuff in a YAML file. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I think I picked middleman a month ago or, or so, and I used it for the Gogoruko website. And then I did some crazy stuff in YAML to simplify what I was doing in the Ruby code that was displaying pages. And I, re I just realized I have all that code up publicly, so I can put a link to that repo in the, in this as well. But I found a, I found a pretty cool page on the YAML, uh, the YAML website that explained all of the bizarre stuff that YAML can do in a format that's actually understandable. But the basic YAML specification on YAML.org is pretty uh, impossible to understand. <laughs> so, but so, but there's a there's a great page that um, that simplifies a lot of that stuff by showing an example in YAML and a corresponding form in Ruby. So, I think that you know, so this is uh, YAML for Ruby, and I think it's. And a great way to understand what your YAML code is doing. And if you're trying to do something advanced to get an example that's actually useful. And uh, I think that's it. That's it for me this week. All right. Well, I'll go ahead with my picks then. Um, my first pick is if you're trying to get started with uh, Chef, um, go try out Hosted Chef. Uh, you can get a free account. Um, it lets you manage a limited number of, of machines and stuff. But... Uh, it, it's really cool and uh, it's a good way to get going and then you don't have to set up your own you don't have to set up your own chef server um, so you can kind of just get started there also peep codes chef videos are really good um, I picked those up um, they get you they get you off to a decent start um, and so I, I really really like those and then Greg Pollock Jesse Walgamut and I did a, a rails and Ruby courses roundtable on Google Hangouts and um i'm i'm uploading the video right now um i for some reason we couldn't get the hangouts on air to work but uh anyway it it was a good discussion and if you're interested in learning ruby or rails or you know leveling up that way um it's a great way to go and i'll have the link in the show notes for that as well um nathan what are your picks Sure. So uh, I just want to plus one your hosted chef. It is a great way to get going with chef. Uh, system administrators always want to start by installing a server. That's how we want to learn things. Uh, the problem with installing a chef server is when you're done, you have a chef server. Uh, you don't actually have any way that you've managed or automated your infrastructure. So starting off with hosted chef is definitely the way to go. There's a sister site or a, a, a site that will also help you get going, and that's learnchef.com uh, that'll help you with things like Vagrant, and you can get basically from zero to first Chef Converge uh, within about an hour or so. So on to my picks. Uh, actually, I'm going to start with a pick that isn't my own, uh, but my co-host and the founder of the Food Fight Show, Brian Berry, couldn't be with us today, but he sent along his pick in Abstentia, uh, and that is Elixir. He's been playing with Elixir a lot lately and is falling in love with it, so he wanted to be sure that I pass that along to you. Uh, so for my picks, the first pick that I will give is the chef community itself. I know that on the Rogues, the last episode was all about the Ruby community. 
And that was awesome. I would say that everything about uh, the Ruby community that is awesome, you will also find within the Chef community. So if you're interested in getting started with Chef, come on in. We are an extremely welcoming community. We'd love to have you. Um, and we'll, we will help you with anything that you need help with. Also, if you want to learn more about DevOps, I have a couple of resources for you. The first is a book called The Phoenix Project. This is a novel about DevOps. And of course, having a novel about something technical sounds kind of wishy-washy. I will say that it is the after-school special of DevOps. It is, uh, you know, you, you <laughs> run into it. Things start off really terrible, like the, the, the child just swallowed the poison under the sink. And by the end, you know, everything's going to be okay. And we're going to be in living in this awesome DevOps world. And that's exactly it. Uh, but you should totally read it. It's a fun, easy read. Uh, and you'll learn a lot about the ideas and tenets behind DevOps. And it features drinking bleach. Indeed, indeed. And Mr. Yuck stickers. Right. I'm in. Also, if you're looking for additional podcasts, uh, in addition to the Food Fight Show, I have to recommend The Ship Shell, which is all about DevOps and release engineering. So check that one out. And then finally, for something fun, if you want to have fun experiencing what a lot of operations and dev people feel like during a... Um, during an outage, I highly recommend this game for the iPhone. Uh, it's called Space Team. Space Team is this awesome game that you have to play with two to four players. Uh, you find that you're in front of a console, uh, shouting out instructions to one another, trying to uh, make it onto the next level. Oh, cool. uh, it's 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 super awesome, super geeky, uh, and I, I challenge you not to have fun with Space Team. And is it? it will, is it like the Star Trek where you, you have one person is the captain and one person is the science officer? Is it like that? It is similar to that, except, of course, no one is in charge. Everyone mm -hmm. is just thrown into chaos. And, and everyone you know, has a different view into the system? Yes, everyone has their own control panel in front of them. And oh, instructions cool. come up like make toast might be one of your instructions or set the gamma ray to six might be one of the instructions. And you have no idea whose panel that control sits on. <laughs> it might be on your panel. It might be on one of your neighbor's panels. You have no idea. So you all and just shout out instructions. And they're getting instruction commands too, right? Absolutely. Just like as if, you know, holy crap, the site, the site is down, right? Okay, well, I'm going to restart Apache. You go and redo the database or you roll back this code, right? So it's all uh, very, very fun. I'm installing that on my and my wife's iPad right now. If I still have a marriage next week, I'll let you guys know. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's also fun. It's also fun for kids. I had a, we had probably 13, 12 year olds sleep over and I taught them all the beauty of space team. It was a good time. So. You know, That's we'll probably cool. be playing that at the Rogues Retreat. It'll be terrible. <laughs> oh, dude, yes. <laughs> yeah, how was the retreat? It was fun. It was a lot of fun. How, <laughs> yeah. How's the book coming? Book? Book? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't one of the commands some, uh, one of you got write a book? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap the show up. Thanks for coming, Nathan. Oh, thanks for having me. I certainly had a whole lot of fun. I hope, uh, I hope you learned a thing or two. I learned a lot. Thank you, Nathan. Yes, thank you. I, I learned I need to listen to a new podcast. Yeah, I wish Brian could have made it, but we, we totally understand the whole uh, having a baby thing. So. But he could have timed it better. Yeah. I don't understand how, how Brian had a baby. 
I didn't say this, Brian this, had a baby. I said he was involved in having a baby. No, you said Brian had a baby. <laughs> no, I said he couldn't be here, and we understand the whole having a baby thing. I, I assert, I assert that you da- said, <laughs> da- David, you're misconstruing how I misconstrued this. I know, but I'm having a lot of fun, so I'm not going to stop. <laughs> Make it end. <laughs> so, so, can, can, can somebody kick the plug? <laughs> See y'all next week. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks so much.